Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loyal, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com. Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720. Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning in to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya here with Katie Goulis. Question, are the Eastern Catholic Churches bridge builders or bridge breakers? This has always been the question of the Eastern Catholic Churches. In other words, those parts of the Eastern Orthodox Churches that began to reunite in separate reunions starting from about the 15th and 16th centuries. And there was always a question, really, about the validity of those unions. And the question in regard to that validity is, are these unions where the Eastern Orthodox in partial reunions, who came back in communion with the Pope of Rome and the Pope of Rome with them, are they things that would be instruments for unity? Or are they things that stand in the way? We're gonna look at that question in a sort of a different light today, because many times, as I've said on this program, the Eastern Catholic churches find themselves at the very epicenter of some of the largest global issues of today. And issues, as you'll see today, that either will divide or unite. And the reason for this is that it is virtually impossible to extricate the Eastern Catholic churches from their cultural settings and how they influence those settings and what their place is in those cultural settings. It's really quite impossible to define that line between culture and church in much of the Christian East, both Catholic and Orthodox. Recently, we spoke to on this program, this is one of the only places you'll hear this kind of reporting of the Eastern churches, of the heinous crimes against worshipers in the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt, where Muslim radicals came in and bombed and killed these people after worship. Well, we have a follow-up to that event, and Katie's going to share that with us today, and it's a very, very encouraging one, one that almost 
kind of brings me to tears. A very encouraging one, and one that also shows where the Eastern churches can, in fact, be bridges, not only in the church, but also culturally. Father Tom, these are excerpts from an article that appeared on the latimesblog.com. In a sign of goodwill, thousands of Muslims attended Christmas masses alongside Christians. A large number of prominent Muslim intellectuals, actors, and clergymen also joined cops in their masses. A campaign initiated by Muslim cultural tycoon Muhammad al-Sawi called on Muslims to act as protecting shields outside churches. Leaflets were handed out by Muslim volunteers reading, We either live together or die together, referring to cops and Muslims. Egypt's cops, who have long complained of inequality and marginalization by the Muslim majority, amount to 10% of the country's population. I just want to remind the listeners that this word copt that Katie is pronouncing is spelled C-O-P-T, which is short for Coptic, which means Egyptian. In other words, referring to the Egyptian Christians, both Orthodox and Catholic in Egypt. You know, Katie, what you read was just, to me, very heartwarming and, and really moving because it said that Muslims actually attended the Mass by the thousands and used themselves as a human shield to protect their Christian brethren. Oftentimes when I've spoken to people, especially in particular clergy, who are very much the know, clergy from that region of the world, from the Middle East, where there is so much strife, I've asked them point blank, what is the relationship really, especially on the grassroots level, between Muslims and Christians? And more often than not, the priests will respond that on the grassroots level, on the day-to-day, the neighborhood, the village, the door-to-door, that those relationships oftentimes are very, very amiable, very, very fraternal. There are people who attend Muslim celebrations in, in sort of a sign of support for their neighbor. They would attend, you know, birthday celebrations or whatever, and vice versa. In other words, there would be a kind of a mutual exchange of, of kindness and friendship between them. And then they would tell me that that was pretty much the norm. But of course, you know that that's not always the case. And unfortunately, more and more, it is not the case. But it does, in fact, exist. And here we have a report, an incident, where it does, in fact, exist, where there is love and cooperation between Muslims and Christians in the Middle East. Now, on this note, I want to bring in our own patriarch, the patriarch of both the Roman Catholic Church and also of the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church, meaning the Pope of Rome. Pope Benedict XVI, in an article from the National Catholic Reporter, writes an article on January 10, 2011, entitled, Pope Rips Anti-Christian Tide in Major Foreign Policy Speech. So what happened was the Pope made a very significant speech. It was a speech to the diplomatic corps, and the remarks came in Pope Benedict's annual address to the diplomatic corps accredited to the Holy See. The Holy See currently has diplomatic relations with 178 nations and the European Union, as well as special observer status at the United Nations. Now, in years past, popes have typically used the speech to diplomats as a sort of foreign policy panorama, surveying major global concerns such as economic justice, war, and peace, the environment, and equity in diplomatic relations. This year, however, the article says, Benedict XVI was focused like a laser beam on religious freedom. Yay, Holy Father and in particular with attacks on Christians. Benedict began by citing the plight of Christians in Iraq, where two-thirds of what was once the Middle East's second-largest Christian population has vanished since the first Gulf War in 1991 and Egypt. Benedict also said he hopes the church will be able to establish suitable pastoral structures, quote-unquote, on the Arabian Peninsula to serve 
immigrant Christian populations. Now, okay, this is an interesting fact that I didn't know about, and I'm certainly, I doubt if our listeners are too. And in this article, it says this, that at the Synod of Bishops from the Middle East, participants said that fully half the Christians of the region today are not traditional Arab faithful, but guest workers, mostly migrants from Asia and Africa. Saudi Arabia now contains the second largest Catholic community in the Middle East with what the Vatican estimates at 1.25 million believers, though the country does not permit public expression of any non-Islamic faith. Now, in the West at the same time, Benedict warned against what he described as a growing tendency to, quote-unquote, marginalize Christianity. In particular, he cited a case currently on appeal before the European Court of Human Rights, which would require Italy to remove crucifixes from its public school classrooms. <laughs> Benedict concluded by asserting that the path leading to authentic and lasting peace necessarily passes through respect for the right to religious freedom in all its fullness. Taking that concern seriously, it would seem, is the price of admission to collaboration with the Holy See on anything else. Again, this article, this report is by John L. Allen, Jr., from the National Catholic Reporter dated January 10th, 2011. It is very heartwarming for me to hear from the leader of the whole Catholic Church, which of course is our leader as well as Eastern Catholics, this strength, this coming out and defending religious freedom, defending Christians. This is a father defending his own children. And I'm very gratified by that, and especially gratified as an Eastern Catholic. As I mentioned, so many of these hot issues that are now drawing the focus of the world more and more. They can no longer be silent anymore. We can no longer just slip them off or just let them be a little tagline across the bottom of the TV screen on a newscast. These things are coming more and more to the fore. And I'm very, very gratified to see the Holy Father addressing these things. Because although here's this elderly, holy man, this Pope, his voice does have a lot of strength and power to it because he can motivate and mobilize an entire Christian population. He can prick the conscience of the world. And in fact, the conscience of the world was pricked in this event, especially the slaughter of these worshipers in the Coptic Orthodox Church. And as we just heard from the article, they came together based on conscience. And they stood up for what was right, whether Christian or Muslim, what was humanly right. But also added to this, and this is from another source about this incident, this is from AOL News. It's called Egypt's Muslims Attend Coptic Christmas Mass, Serving as Human Shields, quote-unquote. And one of the things that they brought in, Katie, on, on this, as a factor in this whole situation is this, that the economic woes of a country that favors the rich have only exacerbated the frustration of a population of 80 million whose majority struggle each day to survive. Accounts of thefts, drugs, and violence have surged in recent years, and the chorus of voices of discontent has continued to grow. The terror attack that struck the country on New Year's Eve is in many ways a final straw, a breaking point, not just for the Coptic community, but for Muslims as well, who too feel marginalized, persecuted, and overlooked by a government that fails to address their needs. On this Coptic Christmas Eve, the solidarity was not just one of religion, but of a desperate and collective plea for a better life and a government with accountability. Now, isn't this interesting? We now have a global situation, a situation of a nation, which I didn't really know about. Did you know about this, Katie? Did you know that Egypt was having this kind of trouble? Now now we do. Now we're made aware. And why are we made aware? Because of the situation of Eastern Christians, Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians. 
This is exactly what I mean about the significance of the Eastern churches today in terms of the global issues of our day, not only the ecumenical issues in the church, but the global issues of civilization and culture. So when we return, we're going to talk more about the influence of the Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches in the world today and in the church. Stay with us. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East, where we're talking about how the Eastern churches are at the absolute epicenter of some of the hottest, most relevant global issues of our day. And it brings up a question of, are the Eastern churches, especially Eastern Catholic churches, bridges, you know, bridges to unity, both within the church and also culturally? Because as I mentioned, and I cannot cease saying this, very important to understand the Eastern churches. You can never totally extricate the Eastern churches, its liturgy, theology, its ecclesiology, from its cultural setting. It's very, very integrated, very, very wedded. And so what the Eastern Catholic churches do as a church also affects profoundly what happens culturally. As we heard in the first part of our program today, we heard a wonderful, unifying, and very encouraging report that Katie read to us, a follow-up to the tragedy of the Coptic Orthodox Christians who were massacred during their service. We heard a good follow-up from that from Katie, a great heartwarming story where these Coptic Christians later on with their Muslim brethren, Muslims, yes, locked arms together and protected one another during the Christmas Day services of the Coptic Orthodox Church. So again, here's an example where the Eastern churches can be a unifying factor, both culturally and ecumenically as well. 
There's another part of the world now we're going to look at, a part that's kind of dear to me personally, and that's the part of the world of Central Europe. This is the area that is now known today as Slovakia, Ukraine, Romania, Hungary, where all those countries converge. In that region, there's a mountain chain there called the Carpathian Mountains, which are actually the lower mountains of the great upper Tatra Mountains. And they wind their way through Central Europe. And in these mountains, centuries ago, there were a people that settled there called the people of Rus, from where we eventually get the word Rusin and then also Russian. Those are the people of my particular heritage, my particular church. My particular church is the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church, which Ruthenian is actually the English word for Rusin. Now, these people never really had a country, per se. There is something like the Central European version of the Palestinians. They were a people, definitely a people, who had been around for a long, long time in a certain region, but they never really had a country. And so over time, as countries developed and borders were established back and forth based on you know kingdoms and their expansions and contractions, these Rusins were claimed by different nationalities, such as the Slovaks, the Ukrainians, Belarusians, Croatians, and so on. But there is a people called the Rusins. Now, recently, the Rusins have tried to really come into their own, sort of rediscovering their identity, and they're trying to promote that identity. Now, most Rusins are, as myself, Byzantine Catholic. Not all of them, but most of them are Byzantine Catholic. The region that I'm talking about here, the epicenter of Europe, was really a, a convergence point. And the Carpathian Mountain region is a region that largely was converted to Christianity by St. Cyril and Methodius, who were Byzantine missionaries. So the Rusin people, the original Rusin people, are actually Byzantine Catholic. Not all of them, but most of them are. Well, there's an article recently in the Georgian Daily, and it's an article by Paul Goebel, and it says this. It's titled, Encouraged by Moscow, Rusin step up, drive for autonomy, and threaten Kiev with armed revolt. January 7, 2011, only weeks after Russia's consul general in Lviv called him the Moses of his people, Dmitry Sidor, an Ujurod priest loyal to Moscow who leads the Rusin movement in Transcarpathia, declared this week that after many years of using only political tactics, the Rusins are now prepared to defend their freedom with arms in their hands. Sidor says that we do not intend to fight and seek a diplomatic path because we believe in the reality of the achievement of our rights. At a minimum, 70% of the residents of Transcarpathia are Rusins, making them a titular nation, he said, numbering today approximately 800,000. Now, two years ago, when he and the Rusins made similar declarations and asked that Moscow recognize their independence, the Ukrainian authorities opened a case against Sidorov for threatening the territory independence of the country. But since that time, two things have changed. There was now a pro-Moscow government in Kiev. Now, Kiev is in Ukraine. And last fall, Russia's consul general in Lviv, which is also in Ukraine, met with Sidorov and compared him to Moses because, he said, the Rusin priest is leading his people out of the wilderness. Now, this Dmitry Sidorov is actually a Russian Orthodox priest of Carpatho-Rusin descent, and he apparently is leading this nationality movement for independence. And finally, the article says this, which is a very salient point. But perhaps most important, Rusin leaders then and now noted that the lion's share of Russian gas on its way to European markets flows through Subcarpathian Rus, twice more than through the Baltic states and twice more than through other neighboring countries as well. So I guess the Rusins are counting on that little gem to kind of stretch their muscle a bit. But the question remains, is this a unifying factor? It certainly is something that is 
an issue to watch because this is, has huge ramifications because there's been a great tension between Russia and Ukraine. Certainly, Russia is promoting this sort of Russian independence because they'd like to weaken Ukraine. Russia has already agitated Ukraine over the years with this whole idea of sending gas. You know, the, Russia supplies gas to a lot of Europe, especially Central Europe and parts of Western Europe. But that gas comes through Ukraine. Whatever little bit angry at Ukraine, they want to kind of put some muscle on them. They sometimes decrease or shut off the gas and make it hard or they sort of reroute that gas or, or around Ukraine. But a lot of it, as the article said, comes through the region of these Rusins, the people of my particular nationality. And so I guess they're feeling they, they got a little bit of bargaining power there. But again, this whole movement is being led by a priest. So we can see once again that interplay, that sort of integration between church and global issues that is so much a part of the situation of Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians. You see, it's very good for all those of you who are listening to listen to this type of reporting because to understand the Eastern churches, especially today, Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, is to also have great insight, feet-on-the-ground type of perspective on some of the hottest, most significant global issues of our time. So it is rather providential when John Paul II said in his apostolic letter, Orientum Lumen, that the church must come to learn and know more about the Eastern churches. Well, there was more to it than just about ecclesiology. It has to do with world situations, some of them very potentially volatile. It is somewhat the nature of the Eastern churches because they're small and they tend to be churches that are live very close to the heart, that through its history, the process of uniting and breaking up of people or groups getting angry at one another and breaking off and forming their own group under their own head, patriarch, bishop, whatever, seems to be very much a part of the character, as it were, of the Eastern churches, for better or for worse. And this is also the case when it comes to even the saints. Coming up this month, later this month, we have an interesting feast day in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. It's a feast day that has to do with this unity and division. <laughs> in fact, it's almost kind of a funny story. In one sense, we'd see it as funny, but back then, they're very serious about it. The story has to do with three great Byzantine saints, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, and St. Gregory the Theologian. Now, these three men together with St. Athanasius, are the four great fathers, the doctors of the Eastern churches. They were very instrumental in fighting a lot of the heresies, heresies having to do largely with the nature of Christ and also the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Trinity. Who is God really as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Who is Christ really as a one person with two natures? It was these four great minds, great holy men, that were the most instrumental in laying down for the whole church, east and west, and for all times, what the true teaching is on the Holy Trinity. Well, in characteristic Eastern fashion, each one of these saints had their own feast day. And, of course, there were fights among the Byzantine people as to who was the greatest. So there was a solution. There was a solution. <laughs> so a solution was arrived at for this fight, and Katie's going to read about that solution from the Synaxarium, which is a book about the saints of the liturgical calendar. As Father Tom said, each had his personal feast day in the month of January, Basil on the 1st, Gregory on the 25th, and John Chrysostom on the 27th. The common feast we celebrate on the 30th was instituted in the 11th century in the time of the Emperor Alexius Comnenus. At one time, there was a quarrel among the people about who was the greatest of the three. Some gave Basil the preeminence for his purity and courage. 
others Gregory for the unfathomable depth and height of his theological mind, others still Chrysostom for the wonderful beauty of his speech and the clarity of his presentation of the faith. So the first were called Basilians, the second Gregorians, and the third Johannites. But by the providence of God, this dispute was resolved to the benefit of the church and the yet greater glory of the three saints. The Bishop of Eucada, John, had a vision in his sleep in which each of the three saints appeared to him in great glory and indescribable beauty, and then all three together. They then said to him, We are one in God, as you see, and there is no dispute among us. Neither is there among us a first or a second. The saints also advised Bishop John to compile a common feast for them and to set aside for them a day of common commemoration. The quarrel was settled, as indicated, by the wonderful vision, January 30th being set aside for the common commemoration of the three hierarchs. The Greek regard this feast not only as a church festival, but as their greatest national and scholastic holiday. We can see that on all levels, whether in global issues or in the church, it's always a question, a challenge for the Eastern churches of unity or division. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.